as I welcome you uh, into the fellowship of CLC family, uh, I'm going to give us an experience of this letter we've been reading of Ephesians. And we're in the section where it's putting heaven into us, bringing heaven into us. But just so that we understand this, this letter of the Apostle Paul, he knew this church. He had taught this church for two years, um, but now he's in prison and he's addressing them. Uh, and we're going to look at a section of scripture where he begins to break down the different household codes and the power centers. This is was what was done in an ancient letter. Um, so he begins to address the components of this congregation. In some ways, we model this so well because I love how our children are with us. If you imagine the church in Ephesus, time of persecution, they're gathered probably in somebody's large house. Um, they are worshiping across the different class and economic and role structures in their society. And they're gathered, and there's a messenger who has this prized Holy Spirit-inspired letter. And they are gathered to hear what God is saying to them as a community. Uh, and uh, the text that I'm going to be preaching and teaching from is going to be on the platform. But I want to invite you, if you would, to stand and even just to join me in the memory of, of what that must have been like to hear this. And I'm going to read a few selected verses from the first part of this letter. And I want you to just imagine how these verses would have landed upon you. You've professed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You've gone through the waters of baptism. You're now worshiping in this kind of subversive, persecuted community, and you are gathered, and somebody has a message, and this is not the word of a human being. This is the word of God addressing you. And so hear this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. You once were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, but he has made you alive together with Christ. And you are seated in the heavenly places with him. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand for you to do. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were brought far have been brought near through the blood of Christ. I have written these words briefly that you might understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as is now being revealed. In him you have boldness and confident access through faith in him. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, to know God's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved you and gave himself up for you. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, husbands, children, parents, all assembled. And now the verses that our text for teaching is based on this morning. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ. Not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord, and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them. For you know that both of you have the same master in heaven. And with him, there is no partiality. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, we are standing before your presence in reverence. Lord, we, we want to think like the church that first heard these inspired words, like the church down through the ages. We want to be responsive to everything that you would reveal to us. And we pray that the effect of this would be that we no longer walk like we did before we knew you, or that we no longer walk like those who do not know you, and walk without the hope and love of Christ in their lives. And so we pray you would minister to us by the Holy Spirit. We're assembled. Show us your Son, Lord. Show us your grace. Show us your hope. Show us anything we need to turn from or let go of that we can be your people, distinctively bringing you glory, bringing attention to you that will beautify your reputation, Lord, in this place that we live. Lord, we pray that what you do here would be part of awakening this whole county, this whole area of our country to the works and the worthiness of Jesus. And we ask that you would help us in Jesus' name. And God's people together said, amen. amen.
Amen. Please be seated. We come to this section of Ephesians, and God is addressing all of the powers, but he does it in a way that turns the powers upside down. Jesus is always um, turning the powers upside down and drawing attention to the powerless. And this is a way, and we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, this is like Paul is taking a page out of Aristotle and other letter writers who would always address the households, but then he completely contrasts their way of doing it. Uh, when Aristotle addressed the powers, he did it the same way here. He addressed uh, the husband, the father, and the master. By the way, you got to feel sorry for this person because they're the same person. Have you noticed that? The same person is the husband, the father, the master. They get clobbered in this text. But it was convention in those days that what you would do, kind of like if you had, you know, King Charles in the room, you first, thing, first person you address is your majesty, the king. Paul snubs all the powers. He is so offensive, he is so bad-mannered, he does not acknowledge the powerful person first. In fact, in each one of these relationships, what he does is he brings the less powerful person in the relationship up to the forefront. Uh, the next thing he does is he uh, relativizes the power relationship they're in with another human being by speaking of their first and primary master, Jesus Christ. Submitting in the Lord, obeying in the Lord, uh, with an eye to the Lord in all these relationships. And then when he finally gets around to noticing King Charles, <laughs> gets around noticing the powerful person in the relationship, what he does is he reminds them that they are serving in a relationship of equals and that the Lord is commanding them to act in a unique countercultural way. This, these are the power relationships uh, reinterpreted by Jesus Christ. And we come to a section that um, should probably make us a little bit uncomfortable because in the midst of that church, we find that there are, there are slaves. And you say, like, does this mean that God is endorsing slavery? Well, you got to remember, Paul is chained to a prisoner as he's writing this letter. It doesn't mean that God, the fact that Paul wrote this letter in prison doesn't mean that God was endorsing Rome's policy to imprison Christians. But Paul is writing in the reality of a broken, fallen culture, and here's some facts that you might, might help you understand the context of this letter. In Rome at the time that Paul was writing, according to the best of historians, the Roman Empire had 60 million slaves. Can you imagine that? 60 million slaves. In some of the uh, cities, there were more slaves than free people. If you were taken as a prisoner of war, if you fell into economic uh, trouble, uh, you were a slave. Now, in no place, uh, I don't feel like I need to waste any breath in saying that this was not as bad as the American institution of slavery, but it, but it wasn't as bad, but it was still horrid. <laughs> you know what it means to be a slave? If you're a slave, it means that you have an assigned level of work and you can't quit without being either beaten uh, or worse. And if you ran away, the traditional uh, pattern in Rome is what they did is they branded you. But you know where they branded you? They branded you on your forehead uh, with the equivalent of a great big letter F that meant that you had been a fugitive runaway and you were to be watched. Uh, that's if they decided to spare your life. Uh, and um, it was a brutal work, but there were so many slaves, they actually trained them to be teachers, doctors, fulfill other positions, but they did not make a living wage. 
and their life of a slave was grim and terrible. Commentators uh, looked at slaves as living tools, um, virtually inanimate objects to be exploited and used. The reality is, and it is shocking, and I have trouble believing it myself, but there, we, there have never been more slaves than in the world we live in today. First experienced this in, in learning a little bit about uh, the nation of Kuwait, but it's not alone in this, but there are in, in impoverished nations where people have uh, struggled to actually find food. When they travel outside of their uh, protected country, they are uh, kidnapped and forced into a kind of slavery. So this kind of thing goes on today. And what happened in the whole mix of Ephesus is you find these people converted, uh, converted in these kind of relationships and, and converted in the kind of way that um, it would have been no more effective for Paul to say, uh, I pronounce all slaves should find freedom or be emancipated than it would be to lift uh, a voice, you know, to parachute yourself into North Korea and to say uh, tyranny must stop. It would be uh, certainly a blaze of glory, but it would be a pretty short-lived blaze of glorious ministry. Anybody in for that? Anybody want to parachute into North Korea? Uh, and, and bring the justice of God into that situation. Uh, and so uh, it looks like this could be um, a kind of proof text. And historically, um, this has been used as a proof text to say, see, slavery is in the Bible. Slavery uh, is God's idea. And it, it seems like, well, you say, like, look, preacher, why are you wasting your breath on this today? This is clearly... Nobody in Christianity believes that you should use these texts to enforce a kind of unjust kind of hierarchy or any kind of bullying or hierarchy or obedience. If you're, if you're asking that question, you're saying, oh man, I chose a bad Sunday to, to come because this is not relevant at all. Let me just say that uh, in the midst of March Madness, and, and I'm not picking on, on Mark Adams, but just a few weeks before, uh, this man... Uh, and I'm not, I'm not blaming him. What I'd like to get at is his pastor <laughs> was quoting probably the verses that I read to you from Ephesians 6 um, to his players saying that you need to submit to me because after all, God says, now here's, there's a whole lot of things wrong with this. Uh, and I don't think we need to particularly feel sorry for him because he did uh, uh, leave that position of basketball coaching with a $4.1 million severance package. Not bad, not too bad. Um, but he was quoting this, and he was quoting these verses also to someone who, was not, who were not even believers, right? Some of the players were. Uh, but seeking to use this text of, of saying, see, this means that God has somehow endorsed um, a hierarchy. Uh, and what's really sad about this verse is you'll look in vain at this text. You won't find anything in these verses to slaves, and you certainly won't find anything to the masters um, that encourage them to quote these verses to those underneath them. You know, um, the Bible has many verses that talk, you know, about punching up, like, like challenging the people who are in power. Jesus did this all the time. But you'll never see any arming of the Bible to be given to people who have the power to punch down and double down on the people that they are oppressing. Uh, and so there's no place, and you say, like, like, so what relevancy 
do these texts have? Kind of interesting, some, some pastors preach these as an example of, well, you know, in the workplace, whatever, which shows what we think of work, if we think of work as slavery. Um, these are not verses that God gave to, you know, let's say uh, Korean prison guards to quote to their prisoners. <laughs> these are verses that challenge and to subvert that. And in fact, if you look at verse 9, the one thing he says to the masters in this situation where he's called those under their charge to uh, render them service, to do it spiritually to the Lord, to give their masters every consideration. He says, masters, do the same to them. (laughs) He's calling the people in power to sacrifice power. He's calling the people to lay that power down uh, out of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Uh, And uh, this has often been um, misunderstood and, and misquoted And one of the interesting places that uh, these verses have been wrenched out of their greater context, where, again, God is changing the whole uh, scope and storyline of power relationships, uh, is in this sweet little edition of the Bible, uh, which is found in the uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. This is a version of the Bible that um, came about... Uh, out of an evangelistic effort. It was a well-intentioned effort to minister uh, the Bible to slaves in the West Indies. And when the missionaries wanted to enter the West Indies, those who owned the sugarcane workers, who who enslaved them, uh, said, we can't let you in with that Bible because we're afraid of that message of that Bible might give people some uppity ideas Uh, about their identity and dignity, so we got to edit that Bible. Uh, And so what they said uh, was, uh, we just need to take a few verses out. But um, they actually had to take out 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. Uh, This slave Bible, which was called at the time the Negro Bible, is one of the most powerful examples ever Uh, of manipulation using a controlled narrative. Uh, And so it it used, this slave Bible was the ultimate propaganda tool and the greatest lie ever told. But it also, it condemns those who edited it because it says, it makes it very clear that they are without excuse for trying to quote uh, Ephesians 6.5 out of context because they knew if you saw the whole context of the Bible, Moses, let my people go. Genesis 1, in God's image, he created them uh, that were all equal image bearers. If you quote the whole flow of the Bible, those verses don't make it into the Bible. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, And so it's, you can take the text of Scripture and you can weaponize it and you can use it to oppress But you really can't take the whole storyline of the Bible and do that if you understand the scripture correctly. Uh, And so again, you can get this on Amazon today, by the way, if you want it. If there's anybody you want to enslave, um, you can get this edition. And it is, you know, one thing to commend it if you want to read the Bible in a year. It will only take you a couple months to get through it because it has had all of those verses taken out of it. But it it leaves as as an evidence, again, that it's possible to take the Bible and weaponize the Bible. 
You know, the, the Bible is this living document. You can take the Bible as a, as a text, and, and you can do what one theologian says. You can, you can treat it like a prisoner of war, and you can put it on the torture rack, and you can torture it until you get it to say whatever you want it to say. If you want it to say things that are oppressive, you can find it. If you want it to say things that fuel or allow for hate, you can find it. But, it, but you cannot ultimately do that if you take the whole narrative and the life of Jesus and the whole context of Scripture. It has a powerful, powerfully subversive uh, and powerful textual basis. And people who have understood this, I find, are the most inspiring Christians who've lived. I'll give you a couple examples. And I've just been fired up this week reading of Christians who went against the flow of culture to stand up for the whole narrative of the Bible. Uh, one of my heroes, and I hope it's okay to say that in a Presbyterian church, is John Wesley, in, and a great Methodist. Uh, and he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce. If you know Wilberforce's story, he brought an end, a, a bloodless, warless end to slavery in Great Britain. And he writes him and he says, if God is, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? All of them together, stronger than God. <laughs> oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and the power of his might till even American slavery. And here he calls it, the vilest that ever saw the sun shall vanish away before it. That's written before the Revolutionary War. <laughs> you know, so it, it renders, if you've ever heard people say like, oh, well, you know, these were just people of their times. These were just men of their times. That's not true. In virtually every single time of Christianity, there were voices saying, this is wrong. <laughs> this is wrong. You know, we can't really say that. You know, there's so many different issues that we could say, well, you know, we just live in a culture where people say that, you know, it's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. No, there's always the voice of Jesus that has a witness um, speaking into these situations. Um, Another one of the great voices, because we, we recognize the Methodists, we have to recognize the Calvinist, John, uh, Charles Spurgeon. You guys know Charles Spurgeon? His writings and sermons are still accessible. I mean, I can read them and make my heart burn. And Spurgeon, again, he preached on the other side of the ocean that had already really resolved the slavery issue. And at this time, you know, like in the 1890s, his sermons were still being published in the New York Times, every word of them. And people, the, the circulation of the New York Times went up because they had Charles Spurgeon's sermons in them, at least in most of, most of the places in America. But he got his sermons burnt in a big bonfire in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and in Raleigh, North Carolina, in the States, uh, anyone who was found to be distributing his sermons... Uh, could be arrested for distributing materials intended to incite riots. A Charles Spurgeon. And it's because he wrote this letter, because his, his sermons didn't have a whole lot of reference to America, because guess what? He wasn't preaching in America. And people were citing him as supporting the institution of slavery. And he said this in this letter. He said, um, although I commune at the Lord's table uh, with men of all creeds, and here he's not saying all religions, he's saying all Christian creeds. You know, Methodist, Anglican, whoever confesses Christ, I'll sit down at the Lord's table, I'll have communion with them. But he said, yet with a slaveholder, I will have no fellowship of any sort of kind. Whenever one is called upon me, I consider it my duty to express my detestation of his wickedness 
And I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church as a man stealer. That's why he got, he got burned in effigy, actually. <laughs> he also added one other line to this letter that I, I didn't print in this. He says, and let me add, John Brown is immortal in the memories of the good in England and in my heart, John Brown lives. A pretty radical statement if you know John Brown's um, rescue and revel- John Brown was a Calvinist who believed that God had created him and saved him to fight against slavery with all of his might. And so Spurgeon says, he lives inside me, okay? And, and I share this because I want you to see like the revolutionary narrative of the Bible breathe out of these individuals uh, and is such a powerful and beautiful thing. I pray it breathes in us. I pray that countercultural uh, effect breathes in us. And, and that while we can't get rid of all of the oppressive injustice of the world, and there is a word that says, if you're in an, an unjust situation, um, there is always a word that says you can still, if you can't gain your freedom from that situation, you can still serve God in the midst of it. Um, you can still find a way to bring attention to the fact that you're free in your spirit. You know, the, the story of Viktor Frankl, who was held in Auschwitz, um, who um, wrote an incredible book. It's a brief book called Search for Meaning. Uh, he was in Auschwitz as a psychiatrist. Uh, and he watched his wife and children be put to death by the Nazis and many other people that he knew um, uh, and yet he was continued to, to be used, and he, as a psychiatrist, as he survived that incredible preservation, you can watch YouTube videos of him talking about this, because he lived into his late years. Uh, but, but his whole thing in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is he said, while he, he couldn't escape and he couldn't overthrow the injustice of the Nazis, there was one thing the Nazis couldn't do, and that was they couldn't rob him of his, his freedom to choose purpose in the midst of his suffering. Now, as far as I know, there's, there's no clarity about his relationship with Jesus Christ. But I want to say the commonality there is that this is, this is what Paul is getting here. He's saying in whatever situation or position we're in, we can serve a master who is in heaven. We can have our eye service toward him. And, and that's the, this ultimate emancipation of the gospel is saying that through the cross of Christ, if you've come to the point where you realize Christ took the lowest place lower than any place anyone, any human being has ever had to, to stoop to, uh, the place of being condemned and having all the crimes, all the pollutions, all the injustices, all the dirt of all the earth laid upon us, that he did that in order that we might be raised to life with him and live out a new destiny. And, and our destiny, again, is part of joining that, that liberating band of freedom wherever we go, to, to live in that counter-cultural way. And I believe one of, the, one of the reasons that come out of this is if you know where Paul addresses all of these powers, uh, what is the next topic Paul raises after he deals with human slavery? What is the next power that is on Paul's mind when he talks about having to command those under the sway of human slavery? What is the next thought he has as he thinks of this hideous distortion of the image of God. Like we saw in Genesis, the one thing that human beings are forbidden from taking dominion over is another human being. 
We do not have the right. We cannot take dominion over a human life. We cannot choose to destroy a human life. However feeble and frail they may be at the beginning of life or at the end of life, that's not ours to do, right? Um, That is a hideous distortion of the image of God. It's not our role. God owns his image wherever it's found, right? And so Paul then takes up this institution uh, that is diminishing the image of God. And the very next thing he thinks is be strong in the Lord's power so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil for our struggle is not against the enemies of flesh and blood but against rulers, against the authorities, against these cosmic or spiritual forces of evil, the cosmic powers of this present darkness. That's what he thought of next when he thought about slavery. He knew that what ultimately um, was being opposed, and it's why slavery has continued to exist in the world, whether it's um, sexual trafficking uh, or whether it's this form of servitude that takes advantage of uh, people fleeing from impossible situations. The reason all of that exists is there are spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places seeking to invade this earth with hell. And the reason Paul wrote Ephesians is he says, you are the church that is meant to be an outpost of heaven on earth, and you are to be strong in the Lord's power and might, and you are to take up the whole armor of God so you can stand in that evil day and to stand firm against those things as this colony of heaven. Is that not exciting? (laughs) That that is something that we get to live out where where we are, and it means that... um, we are enacting the, the ministry of Jesus who said in so many ways that, he, that he, he's turning these things on, on their head. He's turning these things on, on their head when he says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. He's turning these things on their head when you know the, the apostle Paul began most of his letters by referring to himself not as an apostle, but what? A slave of Jesus. That he wanted to remind himself that he, first of all, was the slave, the, the willing bond slave of Jesus. I have a little ritual that I do, uh, especially on Sundays, but I try to, on other times too, just to remind me of that, is this, and my kids have said it's out of fashion, but I got this little bond. It looks like a slave's bond. But, but I, I bought this for myself at a time when there was a lot of pressure I felt against the word of God that I felt needed to be preached. And I basically, I enacted a little ritual on Sunday morning that said, God, I'm going into a place of service, pastoring, and preaching. And I want to, first of all, be your bondservant. And I want you to remind me that um, my goal is not to preach sermons that are popular or to go along with what people's notions already are, but I want to commit myself to never preach anything that will put me on the right side of people, but on the wrong side of you. That I, what I say is my best ability to represent what you want said. Because I will tell you, um, and you do treat me well and pay me well, but it is not worth it for me to be put on the wrong side of God for eternity by placating whatever machinery, however large, whatever the influence is to be on the other side of God. And here's the... There is such joy and freedom in that. I mean, when I do that, I, 
when I go through that and say, God, I'm your servant. What I say is your servant. I, if, Paul said in Galatians 1.10, he said, if I were still seeking to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10. That's not just true for me. That's true for all of us. That's true for all of us, and it is part of our destiny. And so I'm going to close this sermon with an opportunity for response before we move into a song that where we're going we're gonna to exalt God. And I'm going to just ask you to adopt a posture, whatever that posture means. Maybe it means relaxing your shoulders or opening your hands in front of you. But I want you just to examine um, three things in your own life. And uh, the first one I want you to offer to God is your use of your power. We may not feel very powerful, but all of us have roles of power relationships of power, supervisory roles in the workplace, roles in our family, influences in marriage. And I want you just to offer to God all of those relationships and say, God, I do not want anybody in a relationship with me to have to pry power away from me. You know, no woman should have to pry equality from the grip of her Christian husband. She has it. But there might be a Christian husband here who says, I, I, need, I need to affirm the dignity of my wife. No child should have to somehow struggle to feel worthy in a relationship with parent, whatever their age, whatever their difficulty. But that should be there. And so I want you to offer your power, your influence. I want you to offer to God your noticing of people. I heard, a, I heard a seminary professor teaching a class on spiritual formation had this as his exam. Uh, the, it was a, one test for the whole exam uh, and to tweak his students on spiritual formation, on being like Christ. Here was one of the questions on the exam. It was, what is the name of the woman who cleans the bathrooms? What is her name? And what is the name of the children that she cares for? Students went ballistic because it was 10% of the grade. They couldn't get an A without knowing. But he said, Jesus, his use of power meant that he noticed people. So I want you to offer to God noticing the people around you. Noticing the people that no one notices. Is there any hierarchy of a relationship? I want you to notice the person who checks you out at the grocery store. Offer that to God. I want you to offer to God anybody who comes under the sway of your work. It's customary in our culture, right, to want to get the lowest price. If we're, if we're hiring someone to work on our car or to clean out our gutters or to do those things, I want you to offer to God and say, God, I want to pay them not the lowest price. I want to pay them the right price. I want to give them something that recognizes their dignity and worth. Amen. So this means even some of you may have to offer, offer to God that you tip generously. Offer that to God. We are intertwined with people. So this is just offering to God our power. Jesus did this 
By the Bible says, though he had equality with God, he did not view that power as something to be clutched onto, but he emptied himself. And that emptying led to the second thing I want you to open your hands to, of, of solidarity. Of where is God calling you to lift someone else up? To invest in someone who doesn't have that power? So it's offering your power it's offering your solidarity, standing with others. And then finally, with your hands open in a spirit of prayer, I want you to offer to God your discipleship, your following Jesus in his school. And I want you just to offer to God for him to correct any lies that you may have come to believe about your power, your status, your protected roles, even things that truly you've worked hard to earn and your investment and sacrifice and disciplines have, but just that maybe you've believed some lie that those things belong to you and that they really have been gifts that God has poured into you from, from grace that has come to you through generations and generations. Offer to you, God, the, offer to God the gratitude. Which one of us chose what century we were born in? None of us. And to offer those things to God. I'm going to just lead us in a little silence and just let you interact with God with whatever bubbles up to the surface of saying, God, how can I respond in the life and the circumstance I'm given to reflect Jesus? Father, we pray that the person of Jesus might be expressed in the way that we live our lives and ring out from us. We thank you that we have been bought by one who stooped infinitely low to save us and poured himself out, even interceding for those that were mocking him and offering them grace and snatching one even at the last moment. Such grace. Lord, we pray that we might be a countercultural force, that we would not just be a church with a great facility and a great welcoming place of worship and connection, but that, Lord, we would be a place also forming us to live those kind of lives. Lord, we want that for ourselves. We know that you want that for us. We want it for the children who are being taught right now. 
We want it for the next generation and the next. Because we want your name to be lifted high. Because, Lord, you are the great one. You stoop the lowest, but you are the highest. How can that be? Only because it's part of what truly being the highest is. And so, Lord, we want to be like you. And we pray that you would continue this conversation with us and you would bring forth specific obedience and fruit from it to the glory of Jesus because we want his name to be lifted high. And Lord, hear this closing song where we sing of your greatness, your unique grandeur. May you be our song and our inspiration in Jesus' name. Continue us in that spirit of prayer and offering as we sing. In Christ's name, amen. to stand with us and sing church.
God is so great. Living for him is so beautiful. It's our privilege to leave this place and take the God we've experienced here out with us uh, to be known. And so I want to invite you to experience the benediction. It's where um, God imparts a closing blessing to us after having encountered him so that that blessing is sealed by his presence and we, we leave and go out into the world carrying him out with us. And so lift up your hearts and receive this benediction. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and length and length and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think or imagine to him be the glory in the church through his power that is at work within you. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Nate and Lori will be in the mug. Yeah, be sure to meet Nate and Lori in the mug. They're there for you to get a chance to, to know as well. See you.